Welcome back, warriors. Tansei Sego Anibuju. Kuenin de Luizi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And today's podcast is going to be the last episode for 2021. I cannot believe the year is almost over. I want to thank all of the Warrior Life podcast listeners and all of those who watch them on YouTube for all of your support. For those who might be new to the Warrior Life podcast, if you like this content, you can support us by becoming a monthly supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation on the Buy Me A Coffee app. And for those of you who watch these videos on the YouTube channel, there's a thank you button there where you can support the podcast with a one-time donation as well. We also have a great selection of t-shirts and hoodies for everybody in the family, the proceeds of which help support this podcast and my Warrior Kids podcast. Don't forget to use the discount code WARRIOR10. That's W-A-R-R-I-O-R, the number one and the number zero. WARRIOR10 when you go to the checkout. I'll also make sure to post the links below in both the podcast description and the YouTube description so that you can find the links easily. Your support helps me keep my content entirely independent. There's also many non-monetary ways to support this podcast. You can like each episode, leave comments, uh, you can leave positive reviews, you can share the episodes all over social media, and you can use it in your classrooms, for example. All of this helps promote the podcast and trigger the algorithms to share it with more people who might not have heard it or seen it before and who would enjoy our content. So today's podcast is an excerpt from my keynote presentation on November 19th, 2021, called Working Together to Save Our Peoples and the Planet. My presentation was part of the Parkland Institute's 25th annual conference called Building the Future We Need, which was held between November 19th and the 21st in 2021. The event was co-facilitated by Jason Foster, who's the new director, and Angela Greer, who's on the board of the Parkland Institute. And my presentation in particular was sponsored by Athabasca University and Situated Knowledges, Indigenous Peoples in Place. The event has been edited for time for this podcast, but if you want to catch the whole event, including all of the opening remarks and comments and some of the conversation, I'll post a link to where you can watch it on the Parkland Institute's YouTube channel, or I'll also post it on my YouTube channel afterwards. So let's get right into it. Oh, thank you so much, Angela and Jason and Steve and Priscilla for the land acknowledgement and Bill for inviting me. Everybody who put this together. Kwe Ninda Luizi Pampometer. I'm from the sovereign Mi'kmaq Nation on unceded Mi'kmaq. And uh, my home community is Ugbaganjig, which is Eel River Bar. And it is such an honor to be here tonight because, you know, when you look at the agenda of what it is you're, you're actually doing, it's, it's about action. It's about education for action. And that's what I'm all about. You know, my first question is, are you sponsored by any fossil fuel companies? If the answer is no, and you're focused on action, then we're a good pair. So thank you all at the Parkland Institute and everybody who's attending actually for being a part of this, because when you look through all of the workshops, it's actually action oriented. And so that's, that's where I am. And boy, oh boy, do we ever need people to come together right now to protect Indigenous peoples, because in so doing, you help protect the planet. We are literally living in an age where everything is moving at the speed of light, not just technology, but political movements and social movements and what's happening to our planet. And we no longer have the luxury of sitting back in ivory towers or doing 
10, 20 year research studies to figure out what maybe we'll do and what we won't do. The time for all of that is past. We know what the solutions are. We have to stop deferring and deflecting and delaying and stalling and just get our butts in care. And it's not like we're not gonna have any challenges. Like most of what I'm talking about tonight is gonna be some challenges. Uh, you know, we're talking about right-wing extremism, white supremacy, corporate greed. They're all working together on a global level, not just here in Canada, to privilege the few and exclude the many. And in so doing, that guarantees the destruction of the planet. So we have to find a way to reverse both of those things at the same time. And when you think about it, white supremacist ideologies together with anti-Indigenous racism is so built into Canada's web of laws, policies, practices, that it is literally ingrained in our economic systems and our governing structures and even our societal norms, what's considered good, bad, what's considered productive and unproductive. And so you've got a scenario where anti-Indigenous racism is not just normalized, many people can't even recognize it anymore, but it serves a purpose. It serves a capitalist extractive agenda that if we don't get a hold on that, we are dooming the planet because as David Suzuki, as the Pope, as thousands of scientists in the United Nations have said over and over again, our last best hope at saving this planet is saving Indigenous peoples because we are the ones who have been on the front lines since contact. And we are the ones who are willing to put our lives on the line, put our freedoms on the line. And, and that's after generations of genocide and oppression and dispossession. We are still the ones who will be the ones on the front lines. Our grannies are on the front lines. Our kids are on the front lines. I mean, you just, you cannot beat that for a commitment to the earth, to the water, and to the planets. And keep in mind, you know, some of these challenges include governments and transnational corporations working together in tandem to control access to, exploit, and profit from life-sustaining resources like water in an endless pursuit of power and wealth that has devastating consequences for Indigenous peoples. But now other people are starting to see it's not just Indigenous peoples who are going to be impacted. It's not just Indigenous peoples who are facing climate change anymore. It's all of us. And that's why we need to come together in the spirit of treaties to work together for our collective benefit. Because think about how these exploitative and destructive practices have created literally the planet's biggest crisis, climate change. And environmental changes that have been impacting Indigenous peoples threaten all living things on this planet. And so now more than ever, we really need all of our communities to come together, set aside personalities, politics, religion, political orientations, and all of that, and come together on two basic foundations, health, safety, and well-being for human beings, and health, safety, and well-being for the planet. Surely those two basic things can unite us from and really set aside all of those political problems which get in the way and, and close people's minds. Because I honestly believe that if we work together across all of these multiple political views and cultures and abilities and identities, we can actually get this done. I actually believe that. I see that. I see the hope in our people. I see the strength, the resilience. I see it in our kids. And our kids are relying on us to make this happen. And I don't know if this is good timing or bad timing, but today's event directly relates to what's happening today in BC, in Wet'suwet'en territory. I mean, for for once, I felt like I was, I was ready, I was planned, I had a, a speech all set out, and then all of this happens, and then I basically have to change everything. Because as we're sitting here, more than 50 heavily armed RCMP officers set up illegal exclusion zones, blocked the media from reporting, arrested the media, 
cut off communications and invaded Wet'suwet'en territory, arrested and forcibly removed Indigenous peoples from their homes and their territories, unarmed Wet'suwet'en peoples. And this isn't the first time that the RCMP's SERG group, the Community Industry Response Group, has been dispatched to violently remove Wet'suwet'en clan members and leaders from their homes and territories. And this unit, which officially claims to be the oversight for energy industry incidents and national security, act like a paramilitary armed security force for the extractive industry. Instead of enforcing Indigenous laws, Canadian laws, oh, I don't know, maybe some Aboriginal and treaty right laws that are protected in the Constitution, maybe BC's and Canada's new legislation implementing UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or all of the international human rights laws that protect Indigenous rights to land and to not be forcibly removed, instead of doing that, enforcing the laws, the RCMP cater to the extractive industry's private economic industries, and they are bolstered by governments. So the challenges we face are not just government and policy, we also have this corporate agenda, the wealth interests behind that. And while the RCMP often makes this rally cry of rule of law, we have no choice, they have shown time and again that they will break all of these laws when it comes to Indigenous peoples or the environment and why? Why? The question is why? What do they get out of it? Well, to none of your surprise, it's called $12 billion in RCMP pension accounts that are investing heavily in the fossil fuel industry, including over $100 million in none other than TC Energy, the TransCanada Corporation that is the owner of coastal gasoline pipeline, which is being forced through Wet'suwet'en territories without the free prior and informed consent of the traditional hereditary leaders and some of the clan members. And experts consider this to be a conflict of interest, but oh my gosh, that is the understatement of the century. Conflict of interest? That's literally how Canada was set up. I mean, the Public Sector Pension Investment Board, which is a crown corporation representing the crown, invests in many extractive industries, including ones like Suncor and Kinder Morgan. Billions in fossil fuels taken from Indigenous lands. None of this should be a surprise. Remember, Canada was founded on violent colonization and forced removals of Indigenous peoples from their territories for the express purposes of extraction. And they didn't care if that extraction hurt Indigenous peoples, contaminated the waters, or destroyed any of the ecosystems. It was extraction at any cost for the purposes of power and wealth. All of this was facilitated by the Northwest Mounted Police, which of course later became the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who were established to literally surveil, control, subdue, and criminalize Indigenous peoples. Literally, they are the armed enforcers of Canada's generations of genocidal policies, and they have benefited from it economically. So what we're seeing today with the RCMP and governments and the extractive industry is a continuation of that colonial mindset. Colonization and colonialism isn't a part of history. It's ongoing. It's that colonial mindset of an extractive capitalist economy that exploits and treats Indigenous lands and bodies as though they are expendable at any cost. And what's worse the RCMP, which is Canada's paramilitary national force in addition to the military, racially profiles, brutalizes, sexually assaults, and kills Indigenous peoples at grossly disproportionate and alarming rates. We know from the CBC's um, study, Deadly Force, that the RCMP are the, one of the worst police forces for killing Indigenous peoples. We know from Human Rights Watch in BC particularly Numerous accounts of RCMP officers raping and assaulting Indigenous women and girls. We know from the Broken Lives report done by former Supreme Court of Canada Justice Michelle Basterash, 
about sexual harassment in the RCMP that found shocking numbers of violent rapes by male RCMP officers against their own female officers. We've RCMP done their own studies about internal corruption. I mean, at what point are we going to be able to advance human rights and climate change without having to face this massive barrier that is the armed enforcer of both the corporate agenda and the government agenda around extraction, the very things that are contributing to climate change, the fossil fuel industry. And you you might be thinking like, why is Pam focusing so heavily on the RCMP? Well, because of what's happening today, but because our mission going forward isn't as easy as just coming up with a policy research paper and educating people and organizing information sessions and having conferences. It's it's not going to be as easy as peacefully defending lands or waters or trying to peacefully prevent environmental destruction like clear-cutting old-growth forests. We are facing armed resistance that defends corporate and government agendas. The RCMP, within a five-month period, spent almost $4 million to try to enforce a court injunction to stop land defenders at Ferry Creek, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, from stopping old growth cutting of their forests. $20 million to date, and I'm sure today is going to add up those numbers, uh, to try to enforce Coastal Gasling's private Civil injunction against the Wet'suwet'en peoples. Uh, where is Coastal Gas Link in all of this? And who bears the costs? Federal and provincial governments. But who pays those costs? It's Canadians. But ultimately, Indigenous peoples, because that money, that wealth, that tax comes from our lands and territories. So we are paying as Indigenous and Canadians for our own oppression. And that's got to stop, especially in the context of climate change. In other words, millions of dollars are being spent for private security for the extractive industry. Uh, what are our options? Could we go to court? We could. Takes a lot of money. Takes a lot of time. It's one of the strategies. But we know from the Yellowhead report that 90% of all injunctions filed against First Nations who are trying to defend their lands are granted. And we also know that 81% of injunctions that are filed against First Nations by corporations are granted. Yet, when First Nations try to file injunctions to try to protect their territories, 80% of them or more are denied. So there is no justice in Canada's court system. What are we left with? Well, we're left with complaints against cops, but external review boards that review cop, you know, RCMP or other police forces actions, they're made primarily of white ex-cops. Lawsuits are denied by primarily white judges. And where is all the money and power right now? Primarily in white corporate interests, white cops, white courts, white corporations, and if that's starting to sound a little bit uncomfortable, I'm doing that on purpose. Because keep in mind, Canada was created on the ideals of preserving at all costs, and I quote from our former prime minister, the Aryan character of Canada, which means again, and I quote, protecting the Aryan race and Aryan principles. That stuff just doesn't go away overnight. That becomes taught and ingrained, implied, direct and indirect. And so knowing this, it's much easier to understand the residential school system and the atrocities that happened there. Forced assimilation of Indigenous people, forced sterilizations, a 60s scoop, murdered and missing, no action on genocide in Canada. That is the core founding of the National Inquiry. Starting to understand that. White superiority has long been tied to racism and exploitation of Indigenous peoples and Black peoples and others in the pursuit of capitalist wealth generation, infrastructure, and energy, primarily for the benefit of white elites. Why am I telling you this? 
Well, because at the same time that Canada is facing its largest human rights crisis ever, the historic and ongoing genocide against Indigenous peoples, and multiple overlapping climate disasters happening across the country because of climate change, we are also seeing a rise in the far right, white nationalists, white supremacists, um, KKK, neo-Nazis, incel groups, you name it, they are on the rise. And guess which country, and all your guesses don't count but the first one, guess which country is the most active in terms of online right-wing extremism and hate groups and connecting, strategizing, organizing, educating, and recruiting other people. Yeah, that's right. It's Canada. It's not the UK and it's not the US, despite what the media might look like. The data shows Canada is the one that is the hot spot. Literally thousands of groups, thousands of pages are involved in spreading white supremacist ideas that are promoting white power, restoring what they call white power, uh, promoting racist hate, and engaging in, in, in promotion of extreme misogyny and violence, and a counter movement to two things, human rights and environmental protections. And so our challenges are coming from a multitude of fronts. And we've seen many, many reports of how these white nationalists and far-right extremists have infiltrated the police, infiltrated the military, and infiltrated the government. And we've also seen a very disturbing trend outside of the U.S., here in Canada, where conservative political parties toy with these fringe groups, trying to harness their anger for their own political purposes, like Donald Trump, for example, who inspired a, a, a riot, a coup, and who had very public and vocal support from neo-Nazis, KKK, and white nationalist groups. On a different level, but not that far removed, we see Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, former Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, and People's Party of Canada, Maxime Bernier, have all played this dangerous political wedge game, stoking fears, vilifying Indigenous peoples, sympathizing with the fringe. And we cannot downplay the role that those politicians have in what those people do, how those people organize, or whether or not they feel empowered and their influence on the more public rise of these white nationalist groups. The rise of white nationalism has happened, in fact, so quickly in Canada that governments themselves don't have a handle on the serious threat it poses to public safety and national security, it is the number one biggest threat in the United States right now. So if Canada is far more active, you have to understand that that's probably one of the biggest threats here in Canada too, but you don't hear a lot about of it, a lot about it. The white nationalist movement can be referred to as far right populist movement, um, have really seen these far right conservatives, even within conservative parties, taking more and more radical positions that we would have thought were done, debated and over with a long time ago. Now, all of a sudden, really, we're going to like re-debate abortion. We're re-debating whether people have human rights, uh, racist ideologies. They're promoting racist, sexist, anti-human rights rhetoric and aligning themselves with certain lobbies like the gun lobby, which has been historically predominantly white, elitist, and tied to white supremacist groups. Not all of them, but they do have their ties. Couple this with Canada's not very great gun laws and the fact that guns are often used in the commission of hate crimes specifically against Indigenous peoples, racialized peoples, and women, then it becomes, it transfers from an ideology to an issue of public safety, knowing that there are two issues that they're very, very focused on pushing back on are human rights and environmental protections. 
all of those things are lining up to make a not very good scenario for us in terms of op advocates. So you've got firearms related violence, which is primarily male based, young male based, white male based, poses significant threats to women and girls, white supremacy and racialized hatred, and you get the idea. And I'm telling you this because the fringe will be one of our challenges in our collective pursuit of social justice and earth justice, but I don't want you to think about white supremacy as a fringe issue. So the fringe are the ones who go out and take these individual or small group actions, but our society has been constructed entirely on white supremacist ideologies. It's ingrained with systemic racism and it's been Everyone has been taught that extractive capitalism is what's important. You can't even counter it with threats to murder to missing Indigenous women and girls or threats to climate change, because what about jobs? As if jobs trump lives, as if jobs trump having a planet in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. And so think about how all of these inter, you know, these ideologies work together and how it can be hard to see for people. But we need to see it, not for the purposes of feeling guilty or pointing fingers or feeling overwhelmed, but how are we going to work this into all of our work going forward? It's not as easy as just saying, oh, here's an environmental problem, let's go work on this, when there's all these other underlying factors behind the scenes that are going to make things much more worse, much more dangerous, and it means that we have to be more strategic and make sure that safety is also part of our strategy going forward. And we can't ever assume, not in a million years, that just because we've made advances in human rights or environmental protections over the last decades, that we can rely on that. What happens when the RCMP, the government, or a pipeline uh, group or company acts outside of the law? What do we do? The UN has already told Canada the United Nations has told Canada to stop Trans Mountain Pipeline, stop Coastal Gasling Pipeline and the Site C Dam, and withdraw the RCMP from Indigenous territories. Canada signed on to those human rights treaty declarations. Canada has agreed to the jurisdiction of those human rights treaty bodies to monitor and uh, report on and recommend to Canada actions to take so that it would stop breaching international human rights laws. Is it any wonder Canada doesn't have a seat on the UN Security Council when A, it's been accused of uh, historic and ongoing genocide, and B, it's not listening to any of the United Nations directions when it comes to protecting the lives, safety, and well-being of Indigenous peoples and our lands and waters. And so Canada refuses, continues to refuse. The RCMP act outside of the law. According to their own reports, they're riddled with corruption, racism, misogyny, and violence, according to all of their reports. So if the government and the RCMP are lawless, is our fate to be left with transnational extractive industry corporations? Do we really expect that they'll act any different? And we know from all of the data that they don't. In fact, Canada's transnational extractive industry corporations, especially mining, are the most feared companies in the entire world. Canada, which goes around having this wonderful reputation of being multicultural and human rights and so friendly and helpful, unless you're an Indigenous person in another country, and then you know Canada's companies will extract your resources that don't belong to Canada at any price. They've been accused of the most horrific crimes. They've even done studies themselves that call themselves out for human rights violations, beatings of local Indigenous peoples, gang rapes of Indigenous women and children, murders, and other environmental disasters that they directly contributed to. So when we talk about you know, dealing with human rights and climate action here in Canada, 
keep in mind, Canada has to be thought of more broadly. It's also wherever Canada has its tentacles, in whatever country that it is contributing to human rights violations and environmental degradation, not just here on this soil, but in many, many other countries. So Canada is literally paving the way for lawlessness around the world. And our organizing has to take that into account. Another problem is that national security and anti-terrorism dialogue has been used as a vehicle to trample human rights, civil liberties, charter rights and freedoms, and has really dialed back the ability of people to resist that and seems to allow now expanded racial profiling, arbitrary detention, and suspension of basic laws and rights. Indigenous peoples, as you know, have already been criminalized our whole lives. Every way in which we are Indigenous has been criminalized. Our hunting, our fishing, our trapping, uh, being on our land, occupying, all of that's criminalized. It's all heavily regulated. Even engaging in some of our traditional economies that existed long before Europeans set foot on this territory, like growing, manufacturing, and trading in tobacco with other nations, that's now heavily criminalized. And if Indigenous peoples participate, well, they're organized crime and, and dealing in contraband. Imagine something that the Europeans didn't even know about until they got here. So it's really that deep. This anti-terrorism bill, which sounds like it's directed at terrorism, but if you really read it and analyze it, they're not looking outward at real, you know, terrorism threats. They're not even looking at inward white supremacy terrorism threats. They're looking primarily at the energy industry and how to create laws and law enforcement around surveillance, monitoring, and criminalizing anything that has to do with speaking out against all of the ways in which the energy industry violates human rights, or contributes to climate change and environmental degradation. So national security, economic well-being, international relations, territorial integrity, sovereignty, even elections are now all excuses under the anti-terrorism bill to violate our basic human rights, not just of indigenous peoples, but we're talking bird watchers and conservationists and environmentalists and human rights defenders too. We even see a disturbing trend of provinces or states passing laws or trying to pass laws to criminalize human rights defenders, indigenous land defenders. And in the United States, one law even to allow um, people to be run over if they're protesting and there be no consequences for the driver. On top of the criminalizing of people who speak out against issues that are impacting human rights and earth justice, are provinces rolling back protections or ignoring protections or issuing orders despite protections around green areas, protected areas, parklands, reserve lands. I mean, in Manitoba, places where there were moratoriums on mining in provincial parks, that's, that's up for grabs. In Ontario, here with Doug Ford, we have green belt and green areas and wetlands and other protected areas. Well, one flip of the switch and here's a ministerial order, a zoning order to just trample all of that so that him and people he knows and people he's associated with can engage in the high price of construction despite what environmental destruction that'll have or ignoring indigenous rights. So I'm not doing this to overwhelm you or to put a damper on all of your important work. I guess what I'm trying to do is raise the alarm and say that the important work that you're doing is a thousand times more important if you didn't know it was already because of these interconnected hardcore challenges that we're facing. All the threats to human rights, the unraveling of protections, the ongoing genocide of Indigenous peoples. And think about that. The genocide of Indigenous peoples. We are the frontline protectors of the lands, waters, and resources. Sometimes the only thing that puts a pause on a destructive project are Aboriginal and treaty rights 
or the need to consult or the need to accommodate or the need to get consent. Canadians don't have that. Indigenous peoples do. So if we don't have Indigenous peoples around, if we're not on the front lines, if we're not asserting our Aboriginal and treaty rights, then you're losing a very powerful shield against unfettered destruction of the planet. And so we're legally important as partners, socially, culturally, economically, of course, but legally important. And our, our supporters, friends and allies shouldn't forget that because you've got this undercurrent of white supremacy and extraction, which is the foundation of our economy. The status quo will always viciously defend itself um, it would prefer to tinker around the edges, defer, delay, deny, but it's our rights and coming together that actually can force change in pretty short order. And governments backed up by RCMP present a real challenge to all of us and what's going to happen on a go forward basis. And that's why what you're doing around education, information, strategizing, developing ideologies and, and putting plans together, that's what we need. And I'm, you know, in my last, you know, 10 minutes or so that I have with you before the question and answer session, I know there's lots of ideas, there's there's lots of thoughts around this. I would like to propose to you something that I think is the solution to all of our problems. And it's pretty simple. It's called land back, literally land back to indigenous nations because land back means resources back. It means respecting indigenous sovereignty, laws and governance over our territories. It also means making amends for loss of past use and the destruction uh, that they've done already. But these have been the same goals for generations. The words that have been used, you know, hashtag land back might be new, but the goals have never changed. It used, it could be called Wet'suwet'en Strong, all eyes on Mi'kmaq, 1492 Land Back Lane, Idle No More, Native Resistance, um, the Indian Resistance Movement, the Indian Pride Movement, the Sovereignty Struggle, whatever you call it, it's all centered around land back and respect for our governing powers over our territories. Who is involved in this movement? Well, it's all of our nations, all over Turtle Island in you know, First Nations here, um, it's, it's tribal governments in the United States. It started with our ancestors shortly after contact, but it involves everybody. It's not just people, elected people. It's not just politicians. It's not just organizations. The real land back movement is a grassroots movement made of men, women, kids from all backgrounds, asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty and governance over our territories, not just under this concept of because it's ours, because we were born with this collective responsibility to protect these lands and not just for human beings, but for all of the plants and animals and fish and insects and amoebas and bacterias and all of those other things that work together in an ecosystem to make us livable, to sustain us. And so what you see on the ground you know, what you see happening in Wet'suwet'en territory or Shekwapik territory, Mi'kmaq territory or Haudenosaunee territory, you'll see traditional and or elected leaders. You'll see community members or clan members and children acting as land defenders and water protectors on the ground. And sometimes they're protecting their women and girls from the really violent and criminal man camps that are set up often uh, close to these projects. And behind the scenes, you, what you don't see are all of the lawyers, researchers, advocates, organizers, policy people, thinkers, connectors, fundraisers, doing all of the support and coordination behind the scenes. And that's how I like to think of the Parkland Institute. You are like the, the people in the background helping to support and bolster these movements on the ground that are on the front lines. And we call on you to do more of that, especially when it comes to land back. You also notice that the land back movement has a very unique characteristic. It's significantly led by indigenous women. 
You know, think of I don't know more indigenous women starting. I don't know more. You know, you think about Dr. Cindy Blackstock, you know, refusing to give up and, and looking for justice for First Nations kids in foster care. You look at these women and all of these clan leaders all over the country standing up and acting as warriors of love and spirit and and community and compassion. And so I think some of my favorite parts about the land back movement is when you see grannies on the front line, you know, grannies and little children. So the grannies in Mi'kmaq territory stopped Alton Gas, finally, despite the fact that they'd already spent money and got approvals and, and started their construction, they stopped it grannies and in so doing inspired the rest of us and taught these things to our kids about this is how you get it done this is how you protect rivers and waterways from the damaging chemicals from hydrofracking that would kill our fish and contaminate our water it felt like it was never going to happen it took many 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 years and lots of successes and failures but ultimately they did it and we need to Focus on that. That's the other great thing about the land back movement. We celebrate each success. Every time the Hummingbird Nation was able to stop Trans Mountain Pipeline, even for a short period, to make sure that that nation was protected, all of those hummingbirds and their habitat was protected. That's a success. And we need to find ways to support that. Does land back mean that anything bad is going to happen to settlers or they're going to be ousted from their homes? Of course not. Absolutely not. Obviously, I don't speak for everybody, but I work with a lot of people and I've worked with them for a lot of years in Canada and the U.S. and tribal governments and First Nations. And I have never met anyone in the land back movement that says, oh, yeah, we want to commit human rights violations and traumas and dispossession and all the same atrocities on settlers that were happened to us. Of course we don't. That wouldn't be in keeping with our treaty relationships. That wouldn't be keeping in reality with the fact that we live and work together and are intermarried and we have families together and we're friends. And, you know, all of that is it's about us working together and coming together as a collective. And so don't misunderstand the land back movement. Indigenous peoples have collectively and consistently said the land back movement is primarily targeting all of the other lands, you know, privately held lands in Canada, very, very small percentage, the majority of lands are known as crown lands held by federal or provincial governments, there is more than enough to give back to Indigenous peoples. So what are the next steps and who's involved? Everybody's involved. Canadians are involved in land back. Businesses should be corporations, governments, and all of their agencies and institutions. Obviously, with governments, there's lots of land to give back to Indigenous groups. It's about transferring those lands back, engaging in good faith negotiations so that there's a fair sharing of the resources, that there's talk about which areas will be exclusive governance, joint governance. Those things are all really important. And when I say sharing the resources... Don't misunderstand that we're just saying, oh, now instead of corporations extracting old growth forests, that it's going to be Indigenous people. No, resources goes beyond natural resources. We're talking about all of the wealth that is generated on Indigenous territories being shared in some way with Indigenous peoples. That could be all the different forms of taxation. That could be all the fees, the you know um, fines, the licensing, the royalties, the rents, the leases, you name it. A percentage of that should be going to First Nations so that we can live sustainably from our own territories. But individuals have a role in this. Institutions, universities do. Think about it. Um, individuals, some of them have lots and lots of land that they don't need. Universities sometimes have lands and infrastructure that they don't need. Same with institutions. Lands can be gifted back by private landowners during their lifetime or bequeathed in wills. Um, it's the same with businesses and universities. Uh, they have a long history of expropriating um, or using, benefiting, exploiting Indigenous lands. And sometimes their organizations or some universities in Canada and the U.S. set up from monies taken from Indigenous peoples. How do you give back? You give back. And that's how it works. And so, you know, 
how would all of this address human rights and climate change? Well, I think if you change who is the governor of the territory, uh, that would go a long way to resolving many of the human rights abuses. Right now, the governors, the RCMP, other police forces, different levels of government and transnational extractive industry corporations are de facto governors, commit grave human rights abuses. If we are to recognize Indigenous sovereignty and jurisdiction and governing power over territories and peoples, then that would go a long way to ending those human rights abuses. Also deal with things like making sure all First Nations have access to clean drinking water. It's kind of not a problem if First Nations have access to their own waters in their own territories. The other thing is that would go a long way towards addressing climate issues. Because if we have control and say over our own territories, the right to say yes or the right to say no and have that no respected, that means we can say no to any projects that irreparably destroy lands, like tailings ponds. We can say no to projects that poison our waterways or our water table, like hydrofracking or pipelines. We can say no to projects that disturb fish habitat, bird habitat, and animal habitat, like clear-cutting forests or open-pit mining. Control over our own lands, waters, and resources combined with our traditional Indigenous knowledges and sciences related to environmental protection and care for ecosystems would be a tremendous help to all of us in fighting climate change. And imagine the opportunity. Here's something. I mean, in, in the, my last minute that I have left, Think of the opportunity that there is to invest in green education, green partnerships, green energy, green technology, green jobs, uh, green green everything in partnership with Indigenous peoples who have been leading the way. That would force the radical change that this society needs. It is not our fault that we are reliant on fossil fuels. It's not being a hypocrite if someone drives a car. What options have government created for us? Very few, but we have the power to now find different options. And it presents endless possibilities to partner with indigenous peoples who are supported, empowered, and sustained by land back and respect for governing power. I believe we can do it. I think, I, I literally have faith. If you look at every advancement that's ever happened in society when it comes to human rights or environmental protections, that came from us fighting on the ground, sometimes for years, sometimes for generations. And we didn't wait for everyone to agree. You know, it's revolution isn't about everybody agreeing. If women waited until every man thought they should have equality, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. Human rights and environmental protections are not popularity contests. They are absolutes, absolutes, non-negotiables, non-starters. Politics and, and ideologies and all those other things can be debated until the cows come home. But human rights and environmental protections, these are absolutes if we are going to have a future. And think about it. We went from years ago belittling environmental rights people as hippies, anti-poverty rights groups as just charity issues, women's rights as just feminist issues, and native rights as, oh, those are just ancient grievances. We now see these as important aspects of social justice, and earth justice. So going forward, that's got to be the basis of everything. And I think land back will just push all of that forward, that that's literally the foundation of our way forward and everything that we're going to be doing in these areas in the future. And I think by working across multiple political views, faiths, cultures, abilities, identities, genders, we can save our peoples and the planet's from harm. And we can actually have a life where everybody is happy, healthy, safe, and lives the life that they want to in a way that respects the planet. So all the plants and animals can do the same thing. Thank you so much for inviting me into this awesome group of warrior people. I hope it wasn't 
too challenging, but I also hope that it does challenge you to think about the work ahead in a different way so that we are better prepared and we can face all of these challenges head on. And I just believe we can do it together. Thank you so much, Pam, for that inspiring and passionate talk. So we have about a half an hour with Pam to be able to sort of ask questions and engage in a bit of a discussion. I'm going to insert a question that we've been talking about a lot here at Parkland, and, and that's about the question of real hope. One of the ways in which Thomas Homer Dixon likes to talk about is, is the difference between hoping for something to happen and hoping to do something. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on the idea of that sense of real hope and what it does for us in terms of being able to take action, what it might mean to make action happen. I wonder if you have some thoughts on it. Okay, so here's the way I see things. I know everybody looks at it differently. What gives me hope and what makes me hopeful is seeing hope in action. Um, I find there's nothing more depressing than people who hope the government will act. I hope that changes soon. Oh, I hope things improve for Native people soon. Oh, I hope they come up with a solution. All of that's like really depressing because it's people not doing anything or hoping that someone else, relying on someone else to do something. Real hope is hope in action. So when I see our land defenders on the ground, and sadly today, they were arrested and removed, but I know that they'll be replaced with other land defenders. And that this is the third time that there's been a massive RCMP invasion. And there'll probably be a fourth because our people don't give up. So in all of the things that look bad and challenging, there's hope in that. Because so long as there's still one person on the ground trying to protect our lands and waters from contamination to make sure that we all have a planet in the future, that's hope in action. And those people inspire other people who inspire other people. And eventually we get the revolution that we need because the thing about revolutions, you never have everybody. A revolution always starts with a small number of people who fight and fight and fight and fight and have successes and failures and continue to fight maybe for many years. But then They've inspired someone else and they've planted seeds along the way. And those seeds have grown in people, seeds of hope and action. And I think people, when they see action happening, that's what gives people hope and might inspire them or encourage them to take action themselves. I think the worst kind of hope, like the antithesis, the anti-definition of hope is wishing for anything or anyone to do something. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Real hope is really an important really important piece of all of this. I hope you all enjoyed that presentation, but even more, I hope you're inspired to take action. And thank you again to all the listeners and viewers for tuning into the Warrior Life podcast. And happy holidays to you, your families, your communities, and your nations. And a special thank you to all the guests I've had on this podcast. Their work is absolutely essential in ensuring the health, safety, and well-being of our nations and the planet. Their work on the ground, in the media, in schools, in the courts, at the United Nations, in our communities, and literally everywhere Indigenous peoples are representing and advocating for us is foundational in ensuring a better future for all of us. It helps inspire solidarity action by all of the other groups in society, whether it's Stop Asian Hate, Black Lives Matter, anti-poverty groups, environmental justice groups, all of us working together makes us fundamentally stronger. In the coming new year, I'll continue to help support their work, lift their voices, and educate the public so we can take the action we need to ensure social justice and earth justice. No, not 500 years from now, but tomorrow and every day after that. So for now, I'm going to be taking some much needed family time over the holidays, and I can't wait to join you all again in the new year. Happy holidays, everyone. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag.